0: bass players and musicians of the world at large who are listening to episode number 25 of the Better Bass Podcast. My name is Wyatt Walker Ware and what you just heard me play there is one of my favorite melodies in all of jazz music really and perhaps in all of music that is the song Falling Grace by the great bass player Steve Swallow. And I'm back after a brief hiatus here back after a brief hiatus from recording the podcast from the base in general, and it's really given me, uh, I've given myself some perspective on some things, on some things regarding musics, regarding the creative process, and regarding this execution thing that I'm so obsessed with, this idea of playing what comes to mind cleanly and deliberately and with intent, but it's been a while since I've stopped myself to ask why I care so much about execution and why we as musicians care so much about execution. And what it comes down to is being able to deliver a part, a melody, a baseline. A baseline is a melody, but a melody, a baseline, a set of chords to deliver our part in a piece of music with conviction and in a way that is compelling, right? How do we take a line that just goes one note at a time one note at a time it's just a bunch of random pitches essentially how do we make that compelling how do we make somebody want to listen to that who is great at making a melody compelling i heard i've been practicing this tune because i got super inspired by listening to uh, john scofield and steve swallow and bill stewart play this song as a trio i'm just gonna let this play here Bill Stewart drums out front. Hate to fade out Schofield solo, but I don't want to take up. Uh, I don't want to take up the entire podcast listening to the music. I actually don't know what album this is from. Swallow Tales, led by loosely led by Steve Swallow, but it's a trio album. It's an ECM record. Go check it out. Bill Stewart, John Schofield, Steve Swallow, Falling Grace. But the the way that Schofield delivers this melody. Is just, it's so different from the way that it's usually played, right? The way that I was playing it at the beginning of the podcast is much more the, uh, much more the quote unquote standard original way to play the melody to Fallen Grace. That's more the way that Gary Burton plays it, the way that Chick Corea plays it. I think I've heard Matheny kind of play it that way before. Lots of musicians of that school like to play this tune and kind of play it that way. But how does Schofield while leaving so much space make this melody so convincing and so hip even though it's very it's very simple it's very stepwise there's not a lot going on there is that uh, there is that octave leap up to the high g there but it's so simple and Schofield plays it I'm doing an incredibly general approximation there. I do do not have Schofield's articulation on the guitar, nor does anyone alive, and I'm also playing it on a five-string bass where I can't necessarily bend the strings as much or as easily as Scho does. But the degree of dynamic control that's present here, the time and sound, just the feel, the way that that Schofield's notes interact with Bill Stewart's ride cymbal, and the way that Steve swallows part, the part that he's playing, this kind of boogalooy groove, right, in the, in the melody in the beginning uh, of Schofield's solo sort to of play. play. I played a couple of wrong chords there. But he plays this, you know, dotted quarter, dotted quarter, quarter note, sort of boogaloo-feeling thing with a few walking quarters dropped in there, very broken, very loose, time-wise, very much in the style of this trio. But what exactly makes this melodic delivery so convincing? That's the question. Of course, it's subjective. It comes down to a lot of personal taste and a lot of subjective things. Maybe you're listening to this and you're saying, Wyatt, what the hell are you on about? I hate John Schofield. Okay, well, don't listen to the Schofield version. Anyways, all subjective, but what it gets us thinking about, what it gets me thinking about in particular, when I kind of go to the land of this abstract stuff, and when I don't lose track of this this abstractness of, let's say, delivering a compelling melody, for example, is... I actually get better execution because I come to the realization and I have come to the realization that you're only going to get so far focusing on tiny details alone and focusing on small things and making everything smaller and breaking every problem down into technical issues. And I think I hit a bit of a wall with that in my practice over the, the couple of weeks prior to me feeling like I needed to just take a break and step away, not even the couple of weeks, the couple of months, really, I think I just hit a technical wall where focusing on purely execution and on purely just getting the notes out right and getting the time, the sound, the control of the instrument right was no longer serving me. And that on its own is definitely not enough to make music definitely not enough to make music that is convincing to an audience or that sounds confident or sounds good. That's another thing I've been kind of obsessing over is this confidence thing, this internal monologue fighting with myself over uh, noticing how much I suck versus approaching performance from a confident standpoint. But I think giving some consideration to the abstract is definitely worth our while giving some consideration to what creates a compelling melody and what makes the delivery of a melody compelling to an audience, what makes us as musicians want to listen to something and want to pay attention and continue to listen to it. Because I'm sure that we have all been in situations where we're just so entranced by some live music or some recorded music that we just feel like we're physically incapable of doing anything other than focusing on what we're listening to and just being so incredibly enamored by whatever is happening to our ears in that moment or whatever's happening on the stage at that moment. It can be a visual component of the performance too that, you know, sometimes you just go to that place and you can't function because you're so excited by what's happening. And conversely, we've all had experiences where maybe we're at a show... And there's some particular moment that happens and you just feel the urge to start talking to your friend standing next to you or start talking to your girlfriend or, oh, maybe I should take my bathroom break now or whatever it happens to be. Pull out your phone. It's current year after all. But what's the difference there? Giving some consideration to what the difference there is is definitely worth our time, definitely worth our effort. And what it's made me realize is that thinking about this stuff pushes me. Thinking about this abstract stuff, thinking about delivering a melody in a compelling way, practicing to deliver a melody with feeling behind it, transcends all of the time, sound, dynamic, control, articulation, technique, all of the mechanical stuff, all of the technical elements to the point that you start to realize that all those things are just prereqs. They're just prerequisites. They're only very, very base-level things that will not get you a compelling performance. Great time and sound and dynamic control on their own will not get you a compelling performance, but those things are also required on the back for a compelling performance. You're not gonna have a great musical moment without great time, great rhythm, great sound coming from the instruments, and good dynamic control. Of course, this is those things can be subjective depending on the style of music and the style of performance that's happening, but I actually come out with better execution when I'm not thinking about the execution. And when I'm thinking about creating something interesting and creating something compelling, when I'm playing this melody... I'm not thinking about executing it. I'm not thinking about the technique. I'm not thinking about getting a clean sound out of the instrument. And instead, I'm thinking about expressing myself, playing in a way that elicits emotion in some way. Then I get a hell of a lot better performance, higher quality time and sound and dynamic control than if I'm thinking about those things and if I'm stressing about those things in the moment. And that's because I'm actually using my skills. I'm actually using my toolbox that I've developed over all of these thousands of hours of obsessive practice, right? Because that's what this stuff is. It's 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 a toolbox. What we do with our hands to the instrument is just various tools. We have pieces of musical vocabulary. We have techniques. We have harmonic ideas. We have melodies. We have songs. These are a big box of tools that we can reach into and pull out a tool and use it. But if we go in our toolbox and we grab this, this weird kind of wrench that we've never seen before and we're trying to figure out how to, trying to, figure out how to toggle the ratchet on this, this fancy new tool that you've got, well, it'd be a lot easier to just pull out your, uh, your old reliable socket set and get the job done than to go through all that. Right, So that's the merit of practicing things until you can't get them wrong instead of just until you get them right. And that's also the merit of working on simple things and working on the old stuff, the stuff that you haven't practiced in a long time. We're never above major scales. We're never above our major and minor scales. Just Just yesterday, of course, this is after not playing the bass for a week, but just yesterday I started my practice routine just playing... 12 keys, major scales, get all the notes right, get them all out, and that's it. Maybe you can figure out a way to make a major scale compelling. Maybe you can figure out a way to make running up a major scale sound beautiful. Playing quarter notes up a major scale, and maybe that can sound like something compelling. Maybe that can sound like a real melody. I mean, it sure worked for Bach and Beethoven. It sure worked for Mozart. It sure worked for classical composers to make incredibly simple melodies to sound incredibly beautiful based on context. And it sure works for classical performers too. The performers of that music, absolutely no uh, no discounting the people who play classical music. I I, I practiced classical piano from about age four to... 14 or so myself, and it's, it's it's intense. I have not engaged in that intense level of repetition of just one piece of music trying to do it the same way over and over since my days of studying classical music on that instrument. But I notice in general, tangent aside, that most of my favorite musicians... Most of my favorite people to listen to, to just listen to them play, especially soloists, everything that they play really does sound like a melody. Everything that they play is very, very convincing, and is played with a lot of conviction, and most importantly is played beautifully. I know that's an overused word, and that's an abstract word, but they're mindful of that most of my favorite players and most of my favorite performers are truly, truly mindful of that. Pat Metheny, everything that Pat Metheny plays sounds like a melody. His warm-ups when he is running chord arpeggios through 12 keys, it sounds like a melody. It sounds like it should be a song. Chris Potter, Michael Brecker, a couple of of other great examples, Mark Turner, uh, Wyatt Quitname and saxophone players. Steve Swallow, Holy crap, Steve Swallow is a fantastic example of that. Him just playing a, playing a bass line, just playing quarter notes. Just, it sounds like a beautiful melody every time. And the, the execution is there, but beyond that, there is intent. There is intent beyond correctness. There is intent beyond execution. There is intent beyond time, sound, and dynamics. There's intent to convey a message. Steve Swallow can convey a message by playing. Steve Swallow can play that and make you feel things, and make you feel emotions, and convince you that he's right. All we have to do is convince the listener that we're right. We don't have to actually be right. We don't have to be legit. We don't have to be the real deal. We just have to convince whoever's listening to our music that we are. And really, we just have to convince whoever's listening to our music that we're interesting, And there's a lot more than one way to do that, obviously, and I prefer to do that uh, through sound alone as much as I can. I think that that's how music should be communicated, largely. But that's my thing, is I want to convince whoever's listening to me play, I want to convince whoever's listening to my band that I'm interesting and that I'm worth listening to based on sound alone. And based on improvisation and based on, you know, improvised moments and interaction between the musicians on stage, and be compelling based on that. So it's worth thinking about what your thing is. And on a level beyond just performance, right, on a level of your own sound, your own feel, your concept, who you are as a musician, it's worth thinking about how you're going to make yourself interesting and how you're going to make yourself worth listening to and how you're going to make people want to hear your sound. So what's your identity? What makes you the musician who you are? What makes your music what it is? And why is your music good? Why is your music interesting? Lean into that. Work on that. Spend time with it. Refine your concept. Let's all be better bass players together.